All right. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be your children. God, I thank you that we can have a relationship with you, which comes through Jesus. And we recognize Jesus. We celebrate him today. We celebrate him every, every week here. Uh, but this time of year, we are, we are thinking about his coming to us. And um, we, we are grateful. Uh, I thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. And I pray that what I share today would be in agreement with your revealed word to us. And I pray that it would be given by your spirit's power. So, Father, would you do a work in our heart this morning? Do a work in my own heart, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> two weeks ago, we, the, the title was A Plan from the Beginning, and we looked at God's plan from the beginning of time, going back to the garden, and, and seeing how, how God was already at work. As soon as sin entered the world, God was, had, had, he, he said, here's the plan. And it's not like this is catching God off guard or gasp, what do I do? No, it, this is the plan from the beginning, knowing that, that this is how we would be as people given free will. This is the plan. And then last week, we looked at the plan unfolding. And um, we really looked more at, at just as the angel came to Mary and, and how, this, how this plan really began to unfold. Today, we're going to look at a plan that brought change. Because this really did, and I want you to think especially about how this plan for Mary and Joseph really did bring change. Um, they, they changed drastically. Now, it wouldn't be necessarily a big change for us, but the changes that, they, that were brought about for them, it brought about a change of location. They were in Nazareth, and they went to Bethlehem. And this is a place where Christ was prophesied to be born. We'll get there. Um, but there was definitely a change. And that would have been, that would have been big for people in this time period, because I mentioned this last week, Mary would have been the kind of person, she was a poor peasant girl. So if she would have been typical for someone her age bracket, living in that time, she would have never traveled beyond a couple miles outside of Nazareth. It's just how it would have been. She would have lived, died there. It, that's what she would have known. So there was changes. Well, this morning I want to, um, before we jump into the text that we're going to be looking at, I want you to think with me. So for me as a youth pastor, I always would, oftentimes I would look at the most expensive Christmas gifts for the year. And I just really felt like I should do that again. Okay, So I'm going to look really quick this morning at 10 of the most intriguing Christmas gifts of 2017. And these are, this, this is for the wealthy, okay? This is, you've got to have some dough to afford these, all right? So, number one, that intrigued me. This is top 10 here, okay? Uh, number one, giant infrared healing clam. Yeah, you heard that right. Healing clam. It's a personal sauna that uses an array of tiny infrared lights to penetrate deeply into the aching tissue. 
It's full of jade stones, which have some kind of application in traditional medicine. More importantly, it will let you simulate the feeling of being eaten by a humongous clam. Cost? $14,000. All right? See, I said we're going to go expensive here, all right? You've got to have money for this, all right? Um, All right, anyone want a humongous clam for Christmas? How about this one? Number two, child size 1936 BMW. You got to kind of realize this is pretty cool, all right? (laughs) So the plastic little cars at Walmart that you drive around in are not cutting it for your kid, right? So how about you purchase this? It's a three-fifths the size replica of the real thing. A 1936 BMW. It's handmade in France. Cost $19,650. Why not go buy a real car? Well, if you've got money, you don't. You just go buy this for your kids and you give this Merry Christmas, little Johnny. How about this one, number three? This is 14 karat gold shoelaces. Yeah, you heard that right. Gold shoelaces, Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Custom-made gold shoelaces, which are delivered anywhere to you in the world. They better be for this price. Um, They are, they ring up at $19,000. What happens when you have a lot of money? You just start putting gold on your shoes. Gold and shoelaces, and if that's too much, you could save some money. Go with the silver ones. They're only $3,000. <laughs> How about this one? Oops. There we go. All right. Seven harmonicas signed by Bob Dylan. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so if you already own all of his albums, why not take it a step further and get some harmonicas actually touched by the man himself? He touched all of these, signed them all. And there's seven harmonicas signed by Bob Dylan because each one is in its own key. Good news, shipping is free. Yay! It better be because the price tag, $25,000. You actually can go on Amazon and find these, $25,000. And yes, it does tell you, shipping is free. It better be for (laughs) $25,000. How about this one? All right, so you like Batman, and you like golf. Well, then you need this. It's a Batman golf cart. Check out this Bat golf cart for the next time you go and hit the links. All right, all of you golf people. Now, I'm still trying to figure out who the golfers are here. I know that Jeff likes to golf. I I do. So, Jeff, maybe this is your next golf cart, okay? If if Sue actually would let you do this, okay? So the thing about this bat golf cart is that it has six tires. Can you tell? There's dual tires in the back there. There actually are. Okay? And it has a top speed of 38 miles per hour. Yeah, you're going to be going, you're going to be cruising down the golf course. Price tag, $28,500 for this. All right, we're going more expensive here. Believe it or not, because the gift doesn't look like it should be that expensive. These are really, 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 can I underscore that? Really nice linens. Ultra luxurious bed sheets. Comforter covers, towels, shams, pillow covers, dinner napkins. Threads so amazing you'll never want to leave your bed again, they say. 
And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But price tag for these linens, $55,000. Wow. Isn't, isn't it crazy that people have money to afford this kind of stuff? How about this one? Super modern glass pool table. Great for any man cave. And men, you've got to admit, this is kind of cool. <laughs> 15 millimeter thick glass provides a shockproof surface and see-through pockets that allow you to see your shot hit from any angle. Price tag on this bad boy, $73,000. Merry Christmas. <laughs> How about these? The most expensive sunglasses in human history. Human history. Dulce and Gabbana sunglasses. Solid gold frame and diamond studded pieces. They better be for this price tag. But they also shade your eyes and that's priceless. And because it's priceless, we can jack up the price a whole lot. And we did. (laughs) $383,609. All right. $383,609. Wow. Crazy. All right. How about this one? If you like to vacuum. I don't know if you like to. I actually like to vacuum. There's something really weird in my DNA about like liking to vacuum. I like to see those stripes, you know, on the carpet. There's something about that. I, okay, this one, featuring high-performing tw- 10 amp motor, 14 inch cleaning nozzle. It weighs 16 pounds. This gold plated. This is gold plated, and there are only 100 in existence. So you get one of them. You're special. It's for the person who has everything but nothing to pick it up with. Price tag, $999,999. One dollar short of a million. Yeah. <laughs> Last one here, number 10. All right. All right, all you dog lovers. Here we go. The last one. To say the best for last, right? Also one of the most expensive, although you know the sad thing is there's, there are gifts out there that are far more expensive than what I'm sharing with you this morning. 52 carat diamond dog collar. Yeah, you heard me right. Dog collar. You love your dog enough to give them the very best, so why not give them this? 1600 diamond monstrosity with a 7 carat center stone. Next time you're at the dog park... Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to know that your dog is unquestionably the master here. Price tag for this dog collar. $3.2 million for this. Yeah, you love your dog. (laughs) Aren't you glad you're average? Doesn't it feel good to be average? Now, some of you are saying yes, and some of you are saying no. <laughs> when I see this, I just, I, I look at it and I think, you're kidding. There's a part of me that looks at this, and I'm like, you're kidding me. This is to have money. This is what you come up with, a gold-plated vacuum cleaner to communicate that I have money, a $3.2 million necklace to go around my dog. You're kidding. That's ridiculous. I'm so glad that happiness is something that you and I cannot purchase. 
We can't purchase it. If we could purchase it, then only wealthy people would be happy. And yet, statistically, wealthy people, if they haven't learned how to deal with their money, are some of the most unhappy people in the world today. And when you look at the Christmas narrative, the message of money equates happiness, it doesn't jive. I love what Scott and Lori share. Lori, your words this morning were really, were good. Because happiness is something that you and I cannot buy. And I love to look at the Christmas narrative, which is where we're at. And I love to see what God did and how he communicated with us. Take your Bibles. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 2. We're looking at just the, what's considered the, the traditional narrative. This is what happened. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. And join me there this morning. I believe it's on page 724. If you would like to follow along the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke 2, verse 1, it says this, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. I'm going to stop there. Caesar Augustus. Um, <clears throat> I think it's easy for us to skim over these. Caesar Augustus, ruler of the entire, the entire Roman world, it says here, um, He was the man. He was in charge. Who is this guy? When I I hear these words, I'm not sure if I actually have a a deep appreciation for Charlie Brown and Snoopy. And so I love that 1965 Christmas special that still is aired every year. And you've got Linus um, responding to Charlie Brown when Charlie Brown is mad and says, what is Christmas all about? And so Linus comes out, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about. And he begins and he reads these. And I, when I hear these words, when I read these words, I, just, I actually hear Linus sharing this. It's Caesar Augustus. In those days, Caesar Augustus. But beyond the words of Linus, <laughs> Caesar Augustus, who is this guy? His name, his real name, Gaius Octavius. He was a great nephew to Julius Caesar. He was a born fighter. He really was. This, this guy, Gaius Octavius, or Caesar Augustus, he defeated Mark Antony. And after that, after he defeated him, he was given a lot of fame. And it was then that, that they said, we're calling you Augustus. Do you know what Augustus means? It, it means holy Revered, majestic. That's what Augustus means. These are words that we typically would ascribe to God himself. We would say, that's who God is. God is holy. He is to be revered. He is majestic. But in this case, for Caesar Augustus, they are saying, this is who you are. We are calling you Augustus. And and names do communicate something. 
And this name was communicating something about what they saw in him. But it, it really, because he was a human, it, it just went to his head. These people saw him as a god. It was during his time, during his rule, that people began to really elevate the position of a Caesar as being a god. Small letter G. A historian by the name of John Buckman said that at the death of Caesar Augustus, people comforted themselves by saying he was a god. And they found comfort in that because they believed if he was a god, then he would never die. So they believed that he, would, he was either alive or he would come back to life. It is under his reign that we have Jesus, the King of Kings, born to humanity. This sets the stage. These verses set the stage for Caesar Augustus and Jesus. It's amazing to me the power that both have. And yet how it is so different because Caesar is this man who is trying to become God. Or a man who is eventually said to be God himself. And you have God himself who has all power. Who is choosing to become a man. Role Reversal is different. Both extremely powerful. Jesus, around the creation of the world, everything was created by him and for him. Jesus, choosing to become a baby. Let's read on, verse 2. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Stop there. A census is taken. There is a census. It was more than just simply tax rolls. That was part of it. It was also, in a lot of ways, communicating world dominion. It was world power. It is, we hold the power. You must do whatever we demand of you. And so Mary and Joseph are having to go. Go to Bethlehem. Can you imagine that? Being... Close to nine months pregnant. First time. Never having had a child before. Joseph. A young man. Maybe 17, 18, 19 years of age perhaps. Mary. Perhaps around 14 years of age. Can you imagine having to make this trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Because of this census, making this trek now 80 miles, that's about what it was, approximately 80 miles. That's not really far in our day and age today, is it? 
My family and I went up to Portland yesterday. Now that's less than 80 miles, but we're able to do that because we've got freeways and we've got a car and we can do that. But if you're going by foot, that's a different story. Or at least as we always picture it, going on donkey, which it doesn't say donkey, but there's, you know, that very well could be what it was. But however it was, however they went, it would have been difficult. It would have been very labor intensive. And then Mary, who is pregnant, expecting perhaps the reason why she went with Joseph. I don't fully know. There's a lot of questions I have in there. How was she received by her community? I don't know. She may have been disregarded. They may have figured this is promiscuity. They may have written her off. I don't know. I I don't know. I have these questions. But for whatever reason, she goes with Joseph. Did he know? Did he know? I I have more questions and answers. But did he know the prophecy? Did he know the prophecy of Micah 5 too? Did he know that the Messiah, who his wife, or soon-to-be wife, is carrying, did he, did he know that it's, he is supposed to be born in Bethlehem? I don't know. There's good reason to believe that he would have known. But we don't know. What Was he questioning God? How are you going to do this? The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. I live in Nazareth. I don't know. But they go. And it was a census that took them there. It was what we would consider this tyrant. Ruler. Who is dictating you go here and there. And I love it that behind all of this. Is God. It is God who is saying this is what is going to be. God saying, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Yes, Mary is pregnant with child. And yes, she and Joseph, her pledged husband, yes, they live in Nazareth. But I am going to get them to Bethlehem. And I will do whatever it takes to get them there. And up until the very last month, Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. Apart from those three months where Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. But God will do whatever it takes to bring about the change that he needs to bring. God does that. On a personal note, God did that for me. That's how God works. God does what he needs to do. He orchestrates things to get us where we need to go. And God did that for Joseph. He did that for Mary. To place them exactly where he wanted them to be. And if God sees fit to use an emperor, he will do it. Even when it might seem like this is unfair. That an emperor would have this much power. God will do it. And he did it. He did it. Verses 5 through 7. He went there. The he is Joseph. Joseph went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. 
and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What was that like as they're traveling? When Mary figured out, Joseph, it's time. It's time now. I don't know what it was like. I remember when we had our very first son. And it was that, you know, first-time parents trying to figure out what's this going to be like? How do we know? And they're like, we know. It's time. And maybe Mary was saying, Joseph, it's time. I wonder what Joseph was thinking. Was there that part of him that was thinking, this is, uh, this is unfair. I don't even have a place suitable for Mary to give birth. This is unfair. All we have is this manger. Do you know what a manger is? It's it's a feeding trough. All we have is a feeding trough for animals. That's all we have. There, There may have been that part of Joseph thinking, I wish I could provide better for my wife, my wife to be. All knowing. All-powerful God enters humanity this way. Through two poor peasants who were in Bethlehem acknowledging their existence and the time comes for the Savior of the world to be born. I wonder what that was like. There's three main theories. And I don't want to get too hung up on the theories at all. But they always intrigue me. What was this inn like? One theory is that it was a cave. Looking historically at what would have happened here. It would have been maybe a cave. A cave where the animals would have been kept. All we are told is that there was this manger, this feeding trough, where Jesus is born. They laid him in this feeding trough. So perhaps it was a cave. You know, Mary and Joseph go to to try to find a place to stay. And the inn is is full. And so the, the innkeeper says in our minds, well, hey, I know this cave back here where you can where you can you can use it. You can stay there, and while they're there, the Messiah is born, and they lay him in a, in a manger. Another idea, another theory is that, that this inn would have actually been an inn, and eastern inns in this time period would have been very, they would have been crude. It would have been terrible. Um, it, it's not the, the, the freshly you know, laid hay that we kind of think about. And you walk in, the, the sheep are just nicely laying there, bah, and they're, they're fine. You know, it's, it's not that. It, it would have been, it would have stunk. It, it, it would have been a despicable place, really. The inn would have been a place where there would have been a common courtyard in the center. And the innkeeper was in charge of providing hay or fodder for the animals. Here's some, here's some hay for your animals. He would have been in charge of the fire 
so that the people who go and stay there would have something to cook over. And then on the outside, around it, there would have been these stalls, basically, that you would have stayed in. And it's possible that Jesus would have been there. And the innkeeper said, all of the rooms here are full. There is no room. But I do have this spot over here in the middle, this courtyard. You can use this if you want. It's possible that that's another theory. Or a third theory is this, that because Joseph was part of the line of David and because he was from Bethlehem, it would have made sense that he would have gone to Bethlehem and said, this is my father, this is my grandfather. And they would have said, come on in. Your family, you come on into my house. A house back then would have been two rooms. Back room, living quarters for people to live in. Front room, animals. Animals stay there. I know of two people, a college professor that we had at Multnomah believe this theory. It's just a theory, but always intriguing to me. That Joseph would have gone to his family and said, this is who my father is. This is who my grandfather is. This is the line that I belong to. They would have said, you need to come in here. But they would have been outranked and he would have said, we're full. But you can stay in this front room where the animals are kept. Now, we don't know exactly how this all played out. And we don't have to know. But it's intriguing to me because regardless of what it was, whether it was a cave or an actual inn, or whether it was just simply the inn of of this house for the family, Jesus chose to be born through Joseph and Mary. And he was placed in a feeding trough. He was placed in a manger. Now, if that doesn't communicate something to us, I don't know what will. God himself, God himself, who had every right to be born to the wealthiest of people, could have chosen that. He could have chosen that for himself. But he opts out. God, who created everything, opts out of this and chooses that his entrance into the world would be through that of two poor peasants. That is his entrance. Jesus, he was stripped of all dignity. The Messiah, God himself, chose to lay aside that which rightfully was his. And he chose to be stripped of dignity. And be born for us. I love that. Because if Jesus would have been born to the wealthy, 
then the message that would have been communicated to me is Jesus is just for wealthy people. And he's not for me. But that's not what Jesus communicated. Because that's not Jesus' heart. God's plan from the beginning was to put people in place at the right time, to put them in the right location at the right time, and at the very right time for the birth of Jesus to come about to the poorest of people so that all of us might know, regardless of who we are, for us to know Jesus is for all. There are no barriers for him. He is for all. He is for poor. He is for wealth. For both of these people and everyone in between. Now, earlier I showed pictures of wealth at Christmas time. It's not like God has something against wealth. I really don't believe that. God sees beyond material. God is after our heart. That's what he longs for. And I love it at the very first people, and we'll look at this next week, but the very first people that God goes to are once again the humble. The humblest of people is who he chooses to reveal himself to first. God reveals himself through Mary and Joseph. God reveals himself through a baby born and placed in a manger. God is for us. He longs for us. He longs for each of us. Do you know him? I trust you do. If you do not know him, open up your heart to Jesus. That's why he came. He came to bring us life. It is better life. Not in that it is easy life. Because I would be foolish to stand and say that it will be easier. It's not. He comes to give us better life, better quality of life, true life. To walk with us through life, through all that we go through. And I hope, I trust that you know him as your Savior. That is why he's come. Father, I thank you so much. This is where it began. In humility. And this is where we begin. Father, would you give us the same humility that you had? You humbly came. I thank you for that. It takes humility on our part to recognize the truth of who you are. Father, if we have already recognized that truth, I praise you for that. May we, may we rejoice in that.
and the salvation that we have. Father, if there is anyone that does not have that relationship with you, or if there's anyone that questions that relationship with you, Father, speak, convict. But may we not just have conviction, may we do something about that conviction. May there be that surrender of our will to you. Thank you, Father, for who you are. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.